You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, my name is Erin, and I'm in the McLean Community Group. Today we'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not come in vain or labor in vain, sorry, run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It's good to be with you. My name is Tanner House. I'm the, the lead pastor here. So I thought about my kids a lot this week as I was, as I was writing this sermon And it's because, and maybe some of you parents can identify with this, I live in this tension of wanting to be a fun dad while also wanting my kids to behave and not act like fools. So a lot of times I default towards behavior more than fun. But I'm working on a good and necessary balance there so my kids are homeschooled, so there is ample opportunity for me to correct them and to train them. And I can tell that when, with my kids, I can tell when they are being obedient to Kendra and I because they love Kendra and I, as opposed to when they're being obedient because they're afraid of the consequences or they're being obedient begrudgingly. So certainly, I want my kids to obey. I want them to listen to me. I want them to obey. I want them to want to do so. But I don't want them to obey me purely out of obedience sake. But because I ask them to do the stuff. Because I'm their dad. And I ask them to do the stuff for their growth and their development. I ask them to clean their room because I don't want to do it. And we shouldn't have to do it. And I want them to take some ownership of our house. I ask them to do chores so I can teach them how to work. And hopefully they'll be better spouses someday or better employees or employers someday because of the training they're receiving in my house. I want my kids to obey us. I don't want to fight with my kids. I don't want to force them into compliance. And let's be honest, sometimes it happens and there are consequences in those moments and they lose their privileges in those moments and they still have to do chores. But honestly, when it's like very heavy discipline in my house, I hate that. I hate when that happens because, again, I'm like a mushroom. I'm trying to be a fun guy. hey uh, I want to have fun with my kids. I want them to have fun with me. 
But even beyond that, I really want a relationship with my kids. I want my kids to love me because I love them. And I used to be this perfect parent. And then I actually had kids. And I had realized I had no idea how to do any of it. I had no idea what I was doing. Kind of making all this up as I go. But here's what I can say. Rules and regulations and being heavy and demanding towards my kids doesn't aid in our relationship. It actually causes strain. I want my kids and I to delight in one another. And then I want them to serve one another and for us to serve one another and for their obedience to Kendra and I to be because they love us. And I think a lot of us have this view of God that's kind of this way too. We look at the Bible as a set of rules to follow, a set of checklists to check off instead of having obedience that flows from a relationship with Christ. I'm learning a lot about myself lately, and here's one thing that I'm learning. Sometimes I know God's love to me, and yet I feel it in a very generic sort of way. So, like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But I always feel that, right? I could say it. I can tell you about it. But functionally, my feelings about God and Christ and myself are tied to my performance. Jesus loves me until I sin. Jesus loves me until I don't read my Bible or pray today. And then Jesus is disappointed with me. This I know, even though the Bible doesn't say that to be so. That was good. Y'all didn't laugh. (laughs) I think, though, if we would allow the truth of the gospel to get down into our hearts we would see that God's love for us is not based on our performance. It's not based on what we do. It's based on Christ's righteousness and what Christ has done and his performance in our place. I think if we would allow that to get into our hearts, then we would feel set free to follow him in love and in delight and pursue faithful obedience because he does love us and he loves us in spite of us. So Paul invites us in this previous section where we see the humility and exaltation of Christ and and the calling on us to imitate him in humility and in servitude, we see Paul inviting us to obedience. But this is not obedience simply for obedience sake. This is not obedience rooted in the compulsion and obligation of I should be doing this, I ought to be doing this, I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't feel this way. But rather, this obedience is a response to our salvation that leads to worship and it leads to delight. So I just want us all 
this morning to consider how greatly loved we are by God. And may this great love just propel us forward in delightful and willing submission to Jesus. So I just want to ask that we uh, all, including myself, just approach this text with open hands and a humble posture. And, and let's pray before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our need for you. Lord, show us that our sonship as adopted sons and daughters is not anchored in what we've done or what we will do or what we're currently doing. Lord, that because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, you don't see sinful, broken people, Lord. You just see us through the blood of Christ. So may we be set free from feelings of fear and guilt and shame and condemnation. And just get to walk in delight. Lord, help us where we don't believe that. Lord, help us where we don't believe that. Where we don't believe that the cross and resurrection are good enough for us. Call us to faith. Lord, may we see the gospel this morning is not just the means of our salvation, but also the means of our transformation. And grow us in your likeness. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, I've said this before. It's super cheesy. I will say it again. Paul starts with the word, therefore, growing up, my pastor used to have a very helpful Bible study phrase he would say. He'd say, anytime you'd see the word therefore, you should stop and see what it's there for. Uh, whatever it takes, man. That's in my head for forever. So Paul starts with therefore, so we should look back and see what it's there for. Paul is connecting for us preceding verses to this command. This is the story with the application, if you will. So in verses 5 through 11, we're giving a picture of Christ's humble obedience. We're giving a, given a picture of Christ's submission to the will of God, even to the point of death, even the shameful death on the cross. Paul exhorts this church in Philippi in a very pastoral fashion by calling them his beloved. He says, my beloved, my friends, my children in the faith, as Christ obeyed, you too obey. Because remember, not only do we see a picture of Christ's death, 
but also we see a picture of Christ's reward. Christ has been given the name that is above every name. Christ Jesus, God himself, is exalted and enthroned and is Lord of all. So submission and obedience for the purchase of our pardon from sin's penalty is our only appropriate response. When you look at the preceding verses of 5 through 11 of chapter 2, and you see Christ's humiliation and his exaltation, our only response then should be worship. Because Christ went to the cross, and Christ rose. And so Paul is calling this church. He's yearning for obedience from his friends in this church. They started out well, and he's encouraging them to continue, even though he is not physically present with them. So the implication is that the Philippian church's motivation to obedience cannot be motivated by Paul's physical presence. And it can't be motivated by the fact that, or it can't continue only when Paul is around. But that obedience is in response to Christ. It's a lifelong obedience. Our faith then, church, so the implication for us today, our faith can't be tied to our spouse. Our faith can't be tied to our systems or our churches or our circumstances. We can't continue on in obedience until life gets tough or until, you know, we're squeezed by the world. Our faith must be anchored in the word of God in the empty tomb of Jesus. So Paul is telling them to continue to be obedient. He tells them to work out their salvation in fear and in trembling. Paul is telling them to digest their salvation Take hold of it. Apply your salvation to your daily life. Strive to live a life marked by the holiness of Jesus. Strive to live a life marked by the nature and character of Christ. Strive to live a life that produces the fruit of the Spirit as found in Galatians 5. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So to work out our salvation is to aim for perfection. And guess what? You can't do it. A lot of you need to hear that. You can't do it. You can't be perfect in your own strength. You can't be perfect. You can't do this in your own strength. You can't do this apart from the word of God and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. And this is the same power then that raised Christ from the dead. The language here that Paul is using is saying, continue to work out your salvation. Meaning that believers are saved. At salvation, we are saved for all eternity. Yes, When the Holy Spirit gives us the faith necessary to believe in him for salvation, we are sealed in him forever. But also, our sanctification, I mean, sorry, our salvation biblically 
is talked about as a process. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul here is speaking of salvation as an event that has been accomplished in the past but also the implications for this past completed event carry on into the future forever. And this isn't just a future glory that awaits us as believers, but it's also that we get to grow in Christ now. We grow in our salvation as we work out our salvation, as Paul says. It is a gift. It's a gift to get to obey. It's not just something that we have to do. It's not just something that we are expected to do. It's a gift that we get to follow Jesus. In the theological realm, this would be a good place to start in our understanding of what's known as sanctification. Sanctification is the lifelong obedience to Christ. And we're changed moment by moment into Christ-likeness. And this, too, is a process a process in which Paul is inviting us to take an active part in. We are not called to passivity, but pursuit. So are you pursuing Jesus? Paul says to work out this salvation with fear and trembling. This does not mean that we pursue God because we are afraid that if we don't, he's going to wipe us out or he's going to be indifferent towards us, but that we get to approach him with reverence and awe because apart from him, he could have and would have been just in wiping us out. But that's not the mercy of God to us. Paul says fear and trembling, meaning work out your salvation, not in a spirit of half-heartedness, not in a spirit of disdain, Not in a spirit of trust in self and good works and effort. Not in a spirit of self-righteousness. Not in a spirit of rule following, but in a spirit of wholeheartedness, a spirit of resoluteness, a spirit of devotion to God, a spirit of not wanting to sin and offend the holy God of creation. A spirit of leaning into faith and trust in humility. But, and this is an important but, this is only possible because God is at work in us. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are only able to work out our salvation because the work has been done in us and for us. We're only able to work out our salvation because the work has been done for us in salvation. And what a comfort, right? God has worked in us according to his will and according to his pleasure. It is God who is the infinite source of love for his church and the infinite source of strength for believers. 
And because of this, because God is our love and God is our strength, that can cause us to work out our salvation without fear. Without fear of failure. Because it's God who makes this all possible. We are set free from our own self-imposed standards that we place on ourselves. These standards that say, I have to be good enough. I have to earn enough. I have to earn God's love. I have to pursue his favor. This frees us from that standard. Because guess what? You can't be good enough. And yet God's love is with you. And his love is with you with a love that is unearnable in yourself. You cannot earn this love in yourself. The work has been done for you, and God's love is in you because it was according to his good pleasure to work on your behalf. God works to not only amend your sin-sick condition, but he also works to bring your heart to delight in him. So we have that, and then we have this ethical command uh, in verse 14. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The other translations would say complaining. Do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This feels a little abrupt to me. Hey, work out your salvation in fear and trembling by not being a complainer. It would seem reasonable to me that Paul would say, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling by growing in Bible study and growing in prayer and living like Jesus. And all that is true, right? You learn more about the person and work of Jesus through the scriptures. You learn more about who you are in Christ through the scriptures. You get to know Christ through prayer and the scriptures. And as you lean into the nature and character of God, you grow in Christ. But Paul says, work out your salvation. Don't grumble. That's really interesting. When you consider the church at Philippi, they're struggling with disunity internally. They're struggling with petty differences that are causing these rival camps or factions to develop, and the witness of the church is being compromised. We're called to glorify God in all that we do. And it's really hard to glorify God when you are complaining. Grumbling and complaining is the language of our culture. Sometimes it looks like being a gossip about someone. someone. Sometimes it looks like fighting with someone. Sometimes it looks like being critical of your job or your boss or your school or your teachers or your parents or your kids or your spouse or whoever it is you're interacting with on social media. Does that cover all of us, or should I keep going? Uh, Our presidents, our politics, whatever it is, grumble, grumble, grumble all the way to the bank. And listen, it's not just y'all, because I complain a lot about a lot of stuff. Interestingly enough, today, 
uh, I have this sentence in here. Sometimes church doesn't go the way I want it to. <laughs> Irony of ironies, I'm preaching on complaining right this second. Uh, sometimes, also, it's just hard to love my wife and my kids appropriately. And unfortunately, Christians, it may be more of a character trait of mine or of yours. And what else? Maybe even worse. Like, I tend to minimize it. I tend to minimize my complaining. I tend to feel entitled to my complaining a lot. It's like akin to blame shifting a little bit. I complain about somebody that I feel like has done something to me instead of assessing my own heart in the, in the situation. Here's what I've learned. What I tend to fill up my life with generally affects my gratitude and my contentment levels. So I'm like almost two years clean on social media. Again, this is just, this is just me. This isn't you. I've said you do you little sparkle around social media. Whatever, you, whatever is between you and the Lord is great. Social media was not good for me. I found myself that the more exposure I was giving to social media, the worse I was as a complainer. And occasionally I will accidentally, intentionally, accidentally, whatever, end up on Kendra's social media, and then I like start being critical of all these fashion influencers that are like... Uh, so I have to quit looking at social media. And when I've... When, over the last few years, as I've noticed, I'm far less critical of people when I'm not on it. I'm far less anxious, which has been good, and I'm far less discontent. Not grumbling as much. That's a little free stuff for you guys. But when we're tempted to grumble, when we're tempted to complain, as we all will be, grace for you, we must return to the gospel as the source of our joy. Because think about what we discussed last week. Because of Christ's completed work on the cross and through the resurrection and his exalted ascension, we are raised. <clears throat> we have been raised. We will be exalted. We are exalted now and we are seated with Christ. So we are far better off than we deserve. Christians. And when you understand your position in Christ as a child of God, you have no reason to grumble or complain. When you submit to Christ, even in temptations to grumble and complain, we operate out of our salvation. And our salvation looks at us through the blood of Jesus and says, we are holy. We are blameless. We are set apart. Contentment instead of grumbling, is a missional calling of the church. When we have replaced our practice of grumbling and complaining with gratitude, we reflect Christ. We reflect Christ, who could have grumbled and complained as he was suffering in our place. 
and yet he endured in joyful submission to the Father. We don't deserve this grace. We don't deserve our adoption. We don't deserve our sonship. We deserve hell and death and the wrath of God, but he has given us himself. We are sons, and so now our conversations and our dispositions should be worship and delight as we model contentment and obedience. This perseverance in the face of struggle is a mission and a message. As the great theologian Rihanna says in agreement with the Apostle Paul, shine bright like a diamond. All of this is rooted in and anchored in the cross and resurrection of Jesus that has purchased our pardon from sin's penalty. But we are not just pardoned and freed. You're not just set free. As good as that is, you are not just set free. You are fully known by God. You are adopted. You are loved. And the text says that's because of the work in us that way we may become like innocent children. Meaning, the grace that we have been given by God makes it like we have never ever sinned in the first place. Meaning this, forgiveness from sin is really just the beginning of the blessedness we receive because not only do we receive forgiveness, but we receive sanctification, which is also a gift to us because it means that Christ is at work in us as we endeavor to grow in him. Let's look at verse 16. Paul says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ... I may be poured out, or I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is saying to them, Hey, hold on to Christ, because it may be bumpy ride on this side of eternity. The church is facing persecution from the outside, division within, and Paul is telling them to cling to Christ. Persevere unto the end. Paul says that even if he is martyred for his faith, but the Philippians are holding fast to Christ, then he would say, worth it. Sign me up for that martyrdom, is what he says. This is the Christian life. Springing from faith and dependency in God, we can rejoice in the midst of suffering and persecution because our life then and, and our conduct can flow outward from a faithful position in Christ, from love in Christ. Paul says he's willing to be poured out for the sake of others in obedience to Christ and Christ's example to us. It is faith in action in the midst of trials. Paul can rejoice, even facing death, because the Philippians are following Christ. And he's happy and he's content, even though he may get executed any day now. He's happy, he's content, because he's done what God has called him to do. And he's aided the Philippian church in their faith. And he has seen that they have surrendered their lives to a life with Christ. This leads to Paul 
rejoicing as he invites them to rejoice with him as well. Because as believers, they will now experience all the blessing and benefit and joys of being Christ's children. So the question that this text leaves us is this. How do we live a life that reflects the hymn that precedes this text? So let's look at that together real quick. Back up, if you're in your Bibles, Philippians 2, we'll begin in verse 6. It talks about Christ. Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So how do we live in light of this? How do we remember Christ and his sacrifice and Christ and his lordship to us? We remember the cross. We remember the cross and resurrection that is paid for our sins. We remember that the cross speaks forgiveness and grace and mercy to the least deserving sinners. We remember that Jesus has not only purchased our pardon and paid for our penalty, but that God in Christ has adopted us as sons and as daughters, and we are now his children. We remember that Jesus is Lord and one day we will reign with him. We remember that Jesus is Lord and we submit to his lordship, but we do so out of thankfulness and humility for the most undeserving gift of salvation. How do you rejoice? Because Jesus is Lord. How do you rejoice in the midst of sin and struggle? Because Jesus went to the cross. And how do you rejoice in the midst of fear and uncertainty? Because the tomb is empty. We rejoice because Jesus lives. And we rejoice because he is reigning and ruling for all eternity. So submit to him. Follow him. Let's pray.